0: I'm going to talk about uh, life today. It's a good topic to talk about, and and I was thinking, as a Buddhist, how do we look at our life, and how do we build it in a way that benefits us and all the people around us? So I came up with this sort of model paradigm of the five precepts, the three poisons and three of the four Brahma-viharas. And if you know what all that means, you'll see them placed in this model. So number one, if you follow the Eightfold Path or have read the Eightfold Path, the very first path factor is right view. Generally speaking, right view includes understanding the four noble truths at a relative and ultimate level, and understanding karma and how karma works. So I think in Buddhism, for a lot of us, karma takes the place of a divine being in a very good and positive way because there doesn't seem to be an intention with karma In the same way, I have found there seems to be an intention behind the divine being's choices. Especially when it pertains to me. So, so, building with the five precepts. First, we have to understand what karma is. Karma is everything we think, say, and do. The results of everything we think, say, and do is called Vipaka in Pali. Pali is the canonical language of the early Buddhists. So we would have karma, Vipaka, cause and consequence. So we, in a way, are in charge of creating our life through karma. Now, a human being is simply one of the contributing factors in their life. There are 9,999 other contributing factors, but we do have a say in the matter. So, understanding the five precepts, we look at them and say, these are training precepts, these are not commandments. The only thing that will happen to me if I don't follow the five precepts is I will suffer more. But some of us are suffering a lot anyway, and that's just another added burden that may or may not make a big difference to us. So, being skillful, understanding the five precepts. The first one is I take the training precept. And that's how they're written. It's a a conscious choice to take these training precepts. I take the training precept not to take life. And I was thinking about this. Monks uh, take the training precept not to take life, and if they break that, they lose their ordination and cannot be a monk any longer in that lifetime. They have to wait until the next lifetime. And that's, what, that's the reason behind why some Asian monks give back their ordination to join the military to support their country in times of need, and when that is finished, they take their ordination back and become a monk again. Men can do it seven times. Women can only do it once. And that's because Buddhism is a patriarchy or run by those guys. And, of course, it's changing. I think the reason for that, I'm going to digress a second, the reason for that is women can have children. And I'm thinking it's more important for the woman to take care of the child than to be a nun. They'll get the same benefits. They'll become enlightened taking care of that kid. And they will benefit the little guy. And the men, you know, uh, we need seven chances. (laughs) 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 So, So how do you start not taking life? Well, you start with not taking human life. And then you go into animal life. And then you go into insect life. And then you go into life you can't see and never thought of, like microbes and things. And you just, you just sort of work your way down rather than up. Because it's easier, I have found, not to kill human beings <laughs> than it is not to kill mosquitoes. <laughs> that I sometimes have taken it upon myself to wish them a good rebirth and just killed them. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, well, it may have malaria. I'm doing the world... A great service by taking this little life you know so in this practice of not taking life what you start to find is every life has some value even if you couldn't ever figure out why a gnat or a flea would have value they do to themselves and I suppose they got here just like the rest of us by chance of all the planets in all the systems In the cosmos, we seem to be the one that has the most life and takes the most life. So it's an irony, I suppose, that we as Buddhists are saying, okay, I'm going to work directly against my natural instinct to survive and take life. Now, a quick story. Back in the 1980s, I was taking a class on the Vasudhi Maga, the Path of Purification, and this was with, with a Sri Lankan elder monk. And one of the young men in the class was very gun ho and idealistic. And so he brought up this story that he couldn't figure out why he should save his family if somebody broke in and was gonna take all their lives because after reading Buddhism, he figured it was just their karma. Well, my teacher chuckled, he had the same kind of humor that I do, and he said, you are so foolish. He said, when you got married, you took on a duty to save your family, no matter what, even if it meant taking another life, your duty is to save your family, not to the first precept." Now, I thought, how profound is that? And how how idealistic do we get sometimes as we read the Dharma and see all these wonderful monks and nuns doing these great things, not even caring about their own life, and wishing somehow Mm -hmm. we could do that as well. But most of us, myself included, really can't. That's why we have a practice. That's what we aspire to. We aspire to that, but our relative reality sometimes says to us, you need to protect yourself and protect others so you and them can continue to practice and finally reach liberation. So if you commit suicide, you probably missed your chance in this lifetime. And you also gave a lot of pain and suffering to people other than yourself. You shared it with them in a very real way. So suicide is not the answer. The answer is, we are here, we have a chance to practice, we have a chance to achieve our perfection as a human being in this lifetime. So take those afternoon naps and keep working on it. (laughs) Do not take what is not given. It's more than not stealing. It's do not take what is not given. Second precept. Now why are all these precepts necessary? It's the foundation of our practice. It's also the foundation of living in a skillful way with other human beings. That if those human beings realize you're practicing the five precepts, you'll be a good neighbor. And it's our job, I suppose, to try and live in harmony with others who are so different from ourselves. I was giving a talk yesterday and this woman said to me, she said, that's your opinion. And I said, yeah. I said, yes, it is my opinion. It took me a long time to form it. And I know you don't share that opinion, but thanks for listening. And every time I hear something that I really don't understand why the person would be saying it, what I do is not jump on that person, but I'm thinking to myself, now why do they see the world in that way? I've never looked at it in that way. I've never thought of it in that way. What insight do they have into the true nature of their universe? And would it be useful for me? So I continue to listen to people I don't agree with. I understand that it's their opinions and their worldview. And I learn a lot about myself and oftentimes a lot about the world around me. Because I choose to listen and choose to be fascinated by 7 billion different opinions about what this world is all about. So not taking stuff that is not given to you causes a lot of suffering because people think they own the stuff they just use because they have receipts. <laughs> so, it's, it's, we're in a consumer-based, you know, a reality. Uh, our life is determined by the stuff we own. As we get older and wiser, maybe it's good to give some of that stuff away. I've been giving away ukuleles. I have far too many <laughs> and and it's fun and, and one of the one of the restrictions to me giving a ukulele to a person is that they can never ever sell it. They have to give it away because I'm not giving them the ukulele, I'm giving them the use of the ukulele and when they're through using it they can give it to somebody else who wants to use it and on and on and on and it'll have a wonderful life and be played by many people. And every time somebody else plays it, they put a little bit of their energy into it, and it creates a little different sound, and it's so cool. So a woman yesterday at my talk said, you know, if you have any more you want to give away, I want one. (laughs) I said, I don't know if that's really in the spirit of giving. It's more in the spirit of selling, you know. But I'm going to give it to her anyway and surprise her. So that'll be good. Third one is sexual misconduct. And this is really a difficult one to understand why we have these rules. We only have four in Buddhism, which is really cool. And I was talking to a friend of mine before we started our talk today. And, and I said, you know, I've really come to understand something about, about the universe. Where humans have a mating season of 365, 24-7. And, and, and we're always being pushed into replication. We, are, we can't stand alone and be satisfied and fulfilled without having someone else in our life who wants to have other humans. And then finally, because you've become deluded and mesmerized by your partner, you end up having this little creature and And then you have to raise it for eighteen or twenty years and spend a whole lot of money on it, realizing one day it will leave and probably not even say thank you <laughs> after all the time and money you spent on this and and then and 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 then they will go through the same thing, you know, and I think one of the best reasons for for protection is just so we Don't have unwanted children. But are any of them ever wanted? You know, it seems to me they're just a product of lust and greed and delusion. And then we're stuck for 18 or 20 years. And this fellow I was talking to said, Yeah, the first year is so hard because they cry, you don't get any sleep. And I said, Oh, I'm so lucky because I only have cats and I can put them outside when they start to want my attention and he said yeah so i I just see sexual misconduct as as preventing more suffering you know it's how can i do how can i live with my sexual inclinations and 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 do it in a skillful way so what did the buddha say According to Bhikkhu Bodhi, in his book on the Noble Eightfold Path, he said he has come to understand the Buddha said four things about sexual misconduct. Do not have sex with people who are married. Do not have sex with people who are engaged. Do not have sex with children. Do not have sex with people against the will. Four things. Pretty easy to remember. Pretty hard to abide by sometimes it seems. So and that, that website, you know, the people who were married to have sex with other people who were married and da, 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 da. yeah. Wow. And a lot of them were government officials and workers? Wow. And you know what comes to mind? What comes to mind for me is this. Some people have a good life and they simply want to make it interesting. And then they screw up the good life. There you go. So, can we live by that? And if you notice, the Buddha was married. The Buddha had a family. And, the, and three of those have to do with family. Because families are the building blocks of any community. So he respected that. And he said, yes. People married, that, that's a big commitment. It's going to cost a lot of money to raise those kids. Don't interfere. It's hard enough without any kind of distractions. Number four. Skillful speech, we want to speak in a way that reduces suffering, not increases suffering. And this is gonna be the absolute best election uh, ever. (laughs) (laughs) We got Bernie Sanders, who speaks really cool, 1970s folk guy, sort of a socialist, concerned about all human beings. We have Donald Trump who seems to be concerned about an idea of what America is, and is very outspoken, and sometimes that little editor that we have, his doesn't work very well. (laughs) And he says a lot of things that make people feel uncomfortable. Can we live a life and, and speak a truth that decreases suffering rather than increases suffering? Are there times in our life when it's better not to say anything at all? Because you can't think of anything that would be appropriate and reduce suffering. Sometimes quiet silence is the way to go. So the Buddha knew this. And and for a monk, theoretically, you're only supposed to speak about the Dharma. Because the Dharma always reduces suffering. So if you talk to monks and nuns, they don't have a lot to say. (laughs) You ask them how it's going, they say the Four Noble Truths. You know? <laughs> and, and, and that's sort of cool. It's nice to have those people there. Now, the fifth one and the most difficult one of all is not to get high. And in my little song that I wrote on the five precepts, this woman is putting it in a songbook. And she said, I want to change the fifth one. It doesn't work for young kids, you know? <laughs> I will practice not to get high. She, she wants to, you know, I will practice to have a conscious lifestyle or something. I said, oh, no, no, it doesn't work. you got to put getting high. But what happens if the little kid doesn't know what getting high is? And I said, it's a perfect opportunity for the parents to explain it to them in a way that hopefully prevents them from getting high. But what's the issue with getting high? The problem with getting high is it makes us really stupid and sometimes insane. It really does. And we end up making choices based on our stupidity and insanity and create so much suffering in the world for others and ourselves and aren't even aware of it. Clarity is something that is so hard to achieve. It should be guarded at all times to be able to see the world in a realistic way in a way that allows you to see what causes suffering and doesn't cause suffering, which allows you to see the world and see how you can affect the world in a positive way. That, that's just simply amazing. So these five precepts deal with two aspects of our karma, what we say and what we do. It's the place we start. The third aspect of karma is our intention. Our intention leads our speech and action into the world. And that's why, as Buddhists, you guys come to against the stream and sit for hours at a time suffering. And what you're doing is you're simply watching thoughts arise, exist, and pass away. And there were 44 techniques in watching thoughts arise, exist, and pass away. And oftentimes those thoughts define who we are or who we think we are. And this is where we come in to the three poisons, because the three poisons have a lot to do with who we are and what we do. If our thoughts lead our speech and action into the world, and if they have been polluted with the three poisons, like that river accident, oh, three million gallons, oh, so we have that in our head, too. We have three million gallons of polluted thoughts running like a stream all the time. So what are the three poisons? First poison, greed and lust. They're together. Greed and lust are very similar. And, and I find myself being driven by them on occasion, especially greed. You know, they say about a monk, a monk's life is, is to make sense, not money. Mm-hmm. So, so here I am in Food esque getting all my cat food. And those ding-dongs are back on the shelf. Twelve, individually wrapped. <laughs> under five dollars. Greed arises in an instant. I need to claim these as mine. And I need to eat every one of them with a big glass of milk. And I need to appreciate the joy of preservatives and fake chocolate and creamy fillings. And so I do. So I've got, a, I've got a basket full of cat food and ding-dongs underneath my arm and I go up to the checker. And she wonders why I'm still alive. So greed takes on many forms. It's not just about money. It can be about time as well. Uh, It's funny, but, you know, this month I've decided not to do Sunday meditation, and Venita at our center is leading Sunday meditation. I'm just going to take four Sundays off, watching 60 Minutes. I never get to watch 60 Minutes. It just confirms the first noble truth. Life is ultimately unsatisfactory. (laughs) I like to watch it. And so... Last week, some people came to meditate, and I could inform them that Venerable Venita is going to lead the meditation, and they were so disappointed that I wasn't going to lead. How can you not lead the meditation, they said to me, and I said, well, I just need some time off. I just don't want to do it for four Sundays, and they were so disappointed and sort of greedy with my time, I thought, that I have limited time now. I'm getting towards the end. I have priorities. You know? <laughs> and sometimes I just want more time to myself because i got things to think about. You know? So, okay, so they understood eventually. I told them in September, come back. You'll see me on Sunday. I'll be well rested. <laughs> no, I won't, but I'll be there. <laughs> the, the second poison is hatred and anger. And we have far too much of it in the world. All you need to do is watch the news or listen to people talk or go to a political rally. And all you hear is anger and hatred about how things could be, should be, and why aren't they. And you see the 7 billion people with their idea of how it's supposed to be. And and some of them are surrendering to the fact that it will never be that way. And others are still fighting a little bit the good fight to win the battle, but not the war. And where does that stuff come from? I guess the anger and the hatred is important to human beings because we all have it. But it's probably misused. And, and I know my mother used to use it against my stepfather all the time. That when she was about to vacuum the house, she would always pick an argument with him. And then she would use that anger energy to vacuum the house. So he was participating in the vacuuming without even realizing it. And she had a very clean house. So they argued a lot, you know? So some people think they can use the anger and hatred to benefit themselves and others. But generally speaking, it's like holding hot coals. And the Buddha warned us about those hot coals. When you share your anger with others, you're giving them your hot coals. And now their hands are burning as well. So now you have two people that are angry. And then they share it, and now there's four people that are angry. And all those people are holding those hot coals. If you can be the one in the room that refuses the hot coals in a skillful way, you'll be an example to the others on how not to get angry and not to get hateful with whatever is going on. It's a difficult situation because we can be sucked in immediately to an argument. And what do you think, Kusala? Don't you agree? And now you go, whoa. And no matter what I say, I'm going to be wrong because the monk is never supposed to pick sides with anger and arguments, you know. Oh, well. So I pick sides and then half the people like me and half the people don't. And I go have a cup of coffee. But that's this anger and hatred burns us, and it's with us all the time, and it's just boiling under the surface of our consciousness. So we need to be very clear about that. And once anger and hatred turns into speech and action, man, our karma gets messed up. Finally, delusion and ignorance. Boy, this is the biggest one of all. We're all so delusional. We're all living this wonderful hallucination called human consciousness. You know, and it's just amazing what it can do to the world around us because our sense stores don't have all this. Our sense stores have sight and sound and smell and taste and touch. And we take those scent, that sense store information and we create this whole story about our life and everybody else's life and, and the 405 and Melrose Avenue. And like none of that stuff ever existed and never will. And yet we have other people who are hallucinating just like we are, and they go, oh, I know where Melrose is. And you go, really? Did you ever think it might not exist? How can you say that? I drove on it the other day. So it's like, wow, how do you get past that? Because if you start to get past all those hallucinations we create from our sense stores, you're gonna to start to see the world in a rather unique way. And other people are going to think you've become an artist or insane. One of the two. And, and then you're going to say, but can't you see that? And they're going to say, no. I don't even know how you see that. And then you need to share it with others in a very skillful way, gently. Like putting aspirin in applesauce. You've got to sweeten it up. And some of the best spiritual teachers will use humor or stories to share the way they understand and see the world so as not to scare us, you know, and just freak us out. Because none of the stuff exists in the way we think it does. And if you start with that premise, you can take the next step and say, well, how does it exist? And then your meditation practice allows you to actually have the veil lifted occasionally to see the true nature of reality, which cannot be spoken about or understood, but simply experienced, And then the veil closes again, and then we go to Vons (laughs) and get some chocolate milk. Because life is good with chocolate milk. So it's a fascinating idea, these three poisons, the way they affect the way we understand the world, experience the world, and how they manifest in speech and action and cause us to suffer more or suffer less. So that is using the mind and speech and action in our karmic model. Now, what's the benefit of that? What does this allow us to do? This allows us now to go into the four Brahma Viharas, but I'm only going to talk about three of them. The first Brahma Vihara is after you've done this practice for 50 or 60 years and it's just starting to get work for you, now you find the only intention you have is the intention of kindness. So behind everything you think and say and do is this kindness aspect. And you can't speak angrily because it's not kind. But you can define your boundaries. You can say no. You can do all the things you need to do, but simply do it in a kind way, which requires great skill and a lot of time. Okay, second one, compassion. Compassion, we talk about a lot in Buddhism, because the two wings of the bird of Buddhism is wisdom and compassion. And a lot of people think having a compassionate thought is enough. But my understanding of compassion, it's not a thought at all. It's not a mind state at all. It's an activity in the world that is inspired by the thought of kindness, which leads to the activity of compassion. And the activity of compassion is an activity that reduces suffering rather than increases suffering. So uh, if you are actively pursuing your kindness as a practice, you're manifesting in a very physical way that reduces suffering in the world. And this again can be difficult if you're on the 405 and there's somebody in front of you who's just the biggest jerk in the world and your only intention is kindness and your only activity is compassion, you may be stuck behind that guy or gal for a really long time because you realize this is a perfect time to practice your kindness and your compassion. Okay, so you're late for your appointment, you get fired, you end up <laughs> But having kindness and compassion ultimately turns into a gift for the whole world. The third and most important and the most difficult brahmavihara is sympathetic joy. Sympathetic joy. This means you're happy when somebody else wins the lottery. And you, I'm thinking, are you kidding me? That person that won the lottery is just going to blow all that money. They'll be broken a year and homeless. If I won the lottery, I could make a difference in the world. Oh, that's not sympathetic joy. Sympathetic joy is finding happiness in the happiness of others. Yeah, have you ever been happy because somebody else has been happy? I know Paris have a have an insight into this. If, little, if their little ones are happy, it makes them happy because they're doing something right. And I know if, if my little cats that I take care of are happy, then I'm happy because they're happy. And that's sort of sympathetic joy. But it's rare that I'm happy if a human is happy. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, you know, you got more practice to do. Somehow, somehow you miss that insight along the way. Well, what does it mean this is this came to me while taking a shower a couple weeks ago and I find I get the greatest insights in the shower and I probably should take showers more often and have more insights but the feeling that came to me and the insight that came to me was this if I am NOT practicing sympathetic joy I only have one way to be happy that's me if i am practicing sympathetic joy i have seven billion ways to be happy because i'm happy when all those seven billion people are happy i don't have to rely on my own little happiness i can have global happiness cool how about success okay sympathetic joy with success you're happy when other people are successful well that's really hard when you're young As I get older, I find that it's less important for me to be successful. It's more important for me to be fulfilled. It's an inside job, not an external job. And there are a whole lot of successful people in the world and you can tell by the way they look and act that they are successful in their own life, in their own world. If you can use sympathetic joy and achieve success through other success, then you have seven billion ways to be successful you'll have such a prosperous life prosperity in a uniquely buddhist way seven billion ways to be happy seven billion ways to be successful how cool is that so now you've been working you started in your teens and you started yoga and then you found against the stream you started doing meditation and then you started reading the ancient texts and you are practicing and now the five precepts make perfect sense in the four noble truths and you're using karma to benefit yourself and others and have a great lifestyle and now you're looking at your mind and seeing the three poisons and transforming greed into generosity anger and hatred into kindness and compassion delusion and ignorance into insight and clarity You're using the four Brahma Viharas to make a difference in your understanding and the way you experience the world, and then you die. Whoa! All that work? 60, 70, 80 years, and then you die? Is that the payoff? Is that what we're doing this for? Well, you know, we all have to die. And we're dying all the time. All of us. Everybody's, you know... I used to be a hundred different people. They're all dead now. This guy shows up. Pretty soon, this body, though, as it ages and becomes decrepit, it's going to have to die, too. So what's the point of all this practice? Can it benefit us in our death as well as our life? Well, it can benefit us in our life, that's for sure. And hopefully what I've said today explains that a little bit. But in order for it to benefit in our death, We have to practice something really unique. We have to practice having a good thought. Now, it's tough. Some of us, if we're angry or hateful or delusional, the thought process seems to have a life of its own. So it's hard to sort of, you know, lasso it and bring it in and control it. But that's the idea of meditation. The idea of meditation is to understand exactly how your brain works and how it forms consciousness and how you can make a difference in what you think and how you think by having the correct intention. So the intention of having a good thought. Okay, What does that mean? It means to have a good thought, a thought of generosity, a thought of compassion, a thought of wisdom. In combination or separate. But those all qualify as a good thought according to the model of the three poisons. Now, here you are, you're getting ready to die. You've worked your whole life on your practice. And it's come down to having one last good thought. If that one last good thought manifests, that'll be the first thought of the next lifetime. That's how important that last thought is. Most of us probably haven't given much thought to having a good last thought. And if you've read some of the books that have last words of famous people, those thoughts, you probably don't want those as your last thought. (laughs) You want to have a really good last thought, which will allow you to transition in a very special way. It's using this Buddhist path in life as well as in death. It's coming to that place where, because you've been practicing on having a good thought as your last thought, chances are, if you've had a strong and lengthy practice, it will happen. You can have confidence. You don't need faith in this. You can have confidence that that last thought will be good. There are certain ways, if you have the luxury of dying, you know, sometimes you just like die. You're on the freeway and you're dead. And who knows what your last thought's going to be. So you've got to be really conscious all the time, which is the whole idea of mindfulness. Okay, But if you're lucky enough to be someplace where you can die in a bed and you have people helping you die, blah, 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 hospice maybe, then you might want to have the monk or nun come in and look at the robes. Because those, that sight will make sight consciousness manifest in a skillful, good way. And then, and then hearing, the hearing sense door. You want to have some chanting going on, you know, and, and they have wonderful pre-recorded stuff and they have, you can get that instead of watching Oprah on TV and you just turn that thing on and now your whole room is filled with Buddhist chanting and your hearing consciousness now is becoming good and skillful too because of that. And then you got the smell thing happening. And so you get some incense, and if you're connected to oxygen, you're not going to be able to burn the incense, but you can place the incense on the pillow next to you and smell it and realize all the times you've smelled burning incense in the centers and temples before, and that will give your sense door a good thought to smell. Taste, I'm not sure. Maybe a mango. And... then. (laughs) And then finally, the touch. Okay, so you get the mala. You get the 108 beads and you hold that in your hand. And even if you can't move them or manipulate them, the, the sense door of touch now is creating a good and positive thought. So you have the sense doors that are oftentimes responsible for what we think filled with the Dharma. And now the mind, the mind is creating all these positive thoughts. Now, as you're dying, you're turning away from this lifetime. And hopefully you feel good about that. You've done a lot of things you wanted to do. You've done some things you hadn't expected to do. It's been an interesting, if not good ride, you know, and, and now this body is so tired and worn out, it's no good anymore. And the mind's clarity goes in and out, you know, like a bad TV signal. And you just go, yeah, maybe it's time to let go of this vehicle and get the next one. Because they're all lined up like a Hertz rent-a-car. They're all lined up for you, but you've got to get out of the old car to get into the new car. And so then you go, yeah, okay. So it starts making sense letting go. It starts making sense letting go forever of everything because in your meditation practice you've been letting go of everything for 20 minutes. So you know how that feels. And what you get from letting go of everything for 20 minutes is sort of a lightness and a happiness. The burden has been lifted for a while. And then we come back after meditation and the burden is right back there. So this is lifting that burden forever. Wow. Now the transition happens, and you're having problem breathing, and you're having problem swallowing, and your eyes are closing, and da da da. But the internal reality becomes the most important reality because it's just a room and people looking at you die. Now you're going to create this whole place of good thought, good intention, generosity, compassion, clarity. And you're going to take that little bundle with you. And the only thing that travels with you from this lifetime is your karma. Is your karma. You've been working on your karma ever since you figured out how to do it. By what you said, what you did, what you thought. Now, the payoff comes in death that all that karma you've been working on and shaping and forming is going along with you on the ride. You know, they say about people sometimes they have a lot of baggage. Sometimes it's coordinated, sometimes it's excessive. You know? But your only baggage on this journey is your karma. And now the new life starts. And you have two surprised parents. What the hell happened? And there you are, smiling back at them, saying, Thanks for the lust. I finally made it. So that, in, in a few words, not well, quite a few words, is a model of how you can use Buddhism and Buddhist practice to have a good life and a good death. Does anybody have any comments about what I've said or any ideas that they'd like to add to what I've said? Because it's a pretty big model. Okay. Yes? Yeah, I have a question about, um, about anger. Anger. Yeah, I have... I was talking to a friend of mine last weekend, we've been best friends since I was nine, and he's, he said to me, I've never seen you lose your temper, ever. And he says, that's because you're never with me when I'm alone. And i I've never, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And anyway, so he I, that's when my anger comes up, and it's very strong, it's very powerful. And uh, when it comes up, it, there is no reasoning, and there is, it, it seems like I lose everything I've gained in my practice. Um It seems very powerful. I'm just wondering if you might be able to talk a little bit about what might be a skillful... Yeah, a way of dealing. And and that's why we call it practice, not performance. Because you're not there yet. None of us are. That's why we always practice. Okay, uh, one of the things about anger and hatred is it is something that's going to be under the surface and it's going to manifest. I find patience to be very useful. Not to be surprised that it's there. Uh, maybe be surprised that it's coming out now, usually with the smallest little things that didn't trigger it before. Can you wait it out? Because, see, everything that's created has to die. And so that anger, for some reason, was created by certain aspects of your life, certain conditions. Can you wait it out? Can you feel it? Can you go from the external to the internal? How does that anger feel? Generally speaking, our breathing changes and our body starts to tense a little bit. And 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 in a way, it's designed, I suppose, to give us an answer to a problem. It just sort of forces us, with all this energy, to look at other options. You know, well, I could kill it, I could break it, you know. and Or I could just wait for this feeling to go away. And I think that's where the meditation practice comes in, is, is it allows us to to feel all these greed, anger, and hatred and, 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 and realize it's also delusional and because of our ignorance that we're angry at the situation. And then come to a place of acceptance, which would be the fourth Brahma Vihara, which would be balance of mind. Come to that place of acceptance. And generally speaking, coming to that place of acceptance requires patience for the conditions to change. And thankfully, the Buddha said, Anicca is part of our reality. Everything changes all the time. So, so can we be angry for two days or three days? We can. We can. But think how strong your practice would be after watching anger for three days and not letting it manifest in the speech and action. You know. And sometimes you just need to go alone and be alone. I, I find if I'm really angry, it's the wrong time to make a verbal decision It's the wrong time to go into a a lengthy discussion about the reality of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It's just like, okay, I'm just going to have to sit here for a while and just wait for it to die. If you're able to do that consistently, it dies much faster each time. So some people are said to be angry for an instant, and then it goes away. And it's like nothing ever happened. And some people carry a grudge for years. And so our practice allows us to get to that instant of anger arising absolutely normal as a human being, not as an enlightened human being, but we're not enlightened yet, so that's just one of the ways we can see how enlightened we are, how long we stay angry. And then we have to be kind with ourselves because this practice is so difficult, and we don't know how many lifetimes we have missed practicing. And, And... to sit there with that and, 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 and have a certain humility about yourself. You know, I, I view myself as having you know, great clarity and wisdom, and then I get angry over a stupid thing, and I go, wow, this, this self-image I have is, is off the mark. Something's wrong with the way I'm perceiving myself. With that kind of humility, then we can go into the observational awareness mode and simply be aware of all the stuff that's going on and then it dies. So that's what I would say. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Question? Yeah, I wondered if um, you could talk more about the fourth Brahma Vihara and, and how come you didn't it. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, so the fourth Brahma Vihara is equanimity, perfect balance of mind, which is nirvana uh, in a way. And, and that, that is where you don't pick sides. That is where there's no anger or happiness, no pain or pleasure. That's a, a rarefied state of consciousness to be. And in the model, what I wanted to show was how to have a good life. And this goes beyond good, but also goes beyond bad as well. So I didn't want to confuse people. Thank you. That's good. Yeah? I have a question. I'm curious about your. Your statement about Melrose not existing. existing. So I, can, I know that I can get comfortable with it. My thoughts are delusional and that it's not real. What the stories I tell myself aren't necessarily <coughs> reality. But is there some absolute mm-hmm. existence beyond my thinking of it or everybody else's thinking? Yes. Yes, it's called emptiness. Empty of independent existence. So Melrose only exists because all the other streets exist. You see? And this is, again, uh, this is sort of Zen-like reality, which is not useful at all in our relative day. I mean, you need to know that Melrose exists. And you need to know what time is so you can be here at the appropriate time, in the appropriate place, to hear the Dharma talk. But all those things are mind-made. Those things do not exist. Time does not exist. Time is a measurement of impermanence. We measure impermanence with time. Melrose is a mental construct to give us a map, but the map is never the terrain. We're always looking at the terrain and only seeing the map. So the enlightened person would also see the terrain as well as the map, and realize the map is more useful in a relative context and the terrain is more useful in an ultimate context. But being humans and living in a complicated society like we do, we can't live in the ultimate. We'd have to have a group of people helping us to eat and clothe ourselves and wash ourselves because those are all relative concepts. Even a self is a relative concept. So it's difficult to look at Melrose and think it doesn't exist in the way you think it does because everybody in your life thinks it exists in the same way. But it is a mental construct, and that can be transcended in deep states of meditation and give you a unique perspective, but more importantly, give you a unique freedom. Freedom from the prison of, of concepts. You know? and, and just those few moments to be free like that can change your life. Yeah, thank you, that's good. Yeah, hi Erin. Hi, okay, so I just spent a week on a family vacation. How was it? I mean, I survived. Good. um, That's a good sign. Um. (laughs) But the disturbing thing was, as soon as I get around my mom, I mean, I forgot everything I knew about being a Buddhist in the last week. Like, I spent most of the week, like, angry and resentful and, like, Mm -hmm. thinking, like, I'm going to kill her or myself before this week is over. And then I come back here, and now that it's over, I was, I'm being. Well, that was so silly. I know the way to get through these things. I, I know what the Buddhist teachings are, and I'm very like calm normally, but I get around triggers like my mother, and I forget everything. And I was just wondering if you have some, uh, yes. some, some insight into that. Yes, yes. I, I used to feel the same way about my mom when I was younger, and I, I could not figure out why was she so mean to me and why she wanted me to do all these things that made no sense at all. But she had a much different picture of the world than I did. I had this little you know, teenage picture, and she had this old person picture and uh, wife and, and mother. Okay. She never changed. Uh, until the day she died, I was still her kid, and she was still my mom, and she would tell me what to do, and she'd be disappointed if I didn't make my bed in the morning. I said, but mom, I don't care about it. She says, I care about it. That's why you should care about it. And, and, and I'm going, yeah, you know what? It's a unique relationship we have with our parents. And, and they're the ones that sort of brought us in to the world, didn't know what to expect, no manuals to how to do it well, did the best they could, and now they're looking at themselves in us. And, they, and they're looking at us and they think, I failed. You know? <laughs> and you go, and, and, and so what did I do? Well, after years of meditation and practice, I started to use kindness. And I would agree with my mom. Whatever she said, I would agree with her. There was no reason to to go into an argument or to disagree with her or to say my reality is better than hers because her reality was hers and my reality was mine. And in Buddhism they say this. If you could carry your mother on your shoulders for the rest of your life, you still couldn't pay her back for what she did. You still couldn't pay her back. There's no way to ever pay your parents back. So I realized that, and I just decided to use kindness. And she didn't quite know how to work with that for a while. (laughs) Because it was so different. And every time I was kind to her and would agree with her on how unskillful I was as her son, she would just sort of smile, a quick little smile at the corner of her mouth. And I, I think what... I was saying to her in a nonverbal way was, you know, you're right, mom. I can never live up to your expectations. I just do the best I can, but you're right. And I think that in the end was the way I paid her back. I made her right. Now, I don't have any children myself, but I have cats. And and the cats don't think I'm always right either. <laughs> Sometimes they want to eat all day instead of just twice a day. So I just, like, you know, I give them some little snacks and I just go on my way. Realizing that that this kindness and compassion and activity does make a difference in the world. And our parents are our best teachers. You'll never get anybody to teach you anything better than your parents can teach you about what's right and what's wrong. Absolutely. Go ahead. I mean... That makes sense, but what about when? When you don't want to do it, when you disagree with it, <laughs> when it's totally wrong. Like, what, when, yeah, what about when they're just completely wrong? Yes. I mean, when like, the, the way that they're looking at the world is just so distorted, it's not just against you. Yes, it's no, like, no, it's, it's them, so absolutely. <laughs> and, they, and they got the whole family against you because they're all seeing the world the way she is, and you're going, how can they all see this world? No, no, none of them see the way she does. She oh. Does Okay, so they all have their own way of seeing it? No, we all agree. She's we all agree that she's wrong. <laughs> it's good. Well, at least you have consensus. She's wrong. You have to allow her to be wrong. She's your mom. And so she's the only person you really have to let be wrong. Because you can't tell her what's right. She's told you what's right her whole life. Well, actually your whole life. You know, and, and if you could see your mom before she was your mom, you'd probably be surprised. She probably has a lot of wonderful attributes that died because she became a mother. You know. And had to get up at three o'clock in the morning because you got up at three o'clock in the morning. And had to feed you when she didn't want to, because she was so tired. And had to send you to school and maybe do homework with you when she didn't want to do homework or even understand the math, but you know, and she's there and, and then after all of that, you know what she did? She let you go. She said, you got to go. You can't stay here. The idea of being a human and being born is that you're born to go. And I'm just caretaking you until it's time for you to go. See, the cats, they don't go. (laughs) They stay there till they die. But the humans go away. And it must be so hard, even if your mom thinks you're wrong and you think she's wrong, to let you go. Because she works so many years on making you who you are. And then she said, I'm going to offer you to the world, because every parent offers their children to the world. And good luck. And then you come back and you say, Mom, you're so wrong. And then you let her be wrong, because you're kind. And you understand she always did the best she could do. She always saw the world the only way she could see it. And she probably didn't do yoga. She probably didn't do meditation. She probably doesn't have the same reference points you do. And that's the place you find in your heart to allow people to be who they need to be. And you're going to be their best friend then. Just because of that. So that's what I would say. But it's so hard to do it and so easy to say it. You know? So, thanks. Thank you. Okay, well, we've reached the end of our time together. Thank you all for coming uh, to hear me speak. I hope what I had to say will ultimately be useful. And let's do a quick loving kindness meditation. May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find Fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free, the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief. May the sick find health relief.